Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Eric Rayton. If you invoke the intelligent creator hypothesis to explain fine-tuning, then you're in the domain of science and your hypothesis is going to be meaningful only to the extent that enables you to make falsifiable predictions and the like. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Eric Raytan is a philosopher at Oklahoma State University. Today we'll discuss his recent book, Is God a Delusion? A Reply to Religion's Cultured Despisers. Eric, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Eric, I've been saying to people that your book is a rebuttal to the new atheists that atheists will enjoy reading because half the time you're agreeing with them about the intellectual poverty and danger of intelligent design or biblical inerrancy or the idea of hell or divine command ethics or blind faith or religious exclusivism or Christian anti-gay positions and lots more. So actually I have to, I have to imagine that you probably get more angry letters from religious people than from atheists. Is that right? Well, most of the angry or hostile responses from conservative Christians have come not directly from my book, but from things that they've read of mine that I've published online, especially in religion dispatches. Probably the most uh, intense period of fire I, I I received from uh, conservative Christians happened in the wake of an article I published back in April in Religion Dispatches, which was, in effect, an argument for why Christians should support same-sex marriage laws. In the course of writing that article, I um, took a jab against uh, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, and a quote from that article was published on the blog of a biblical studies professor as his quote of the day. It was something like, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy causes or inspires people to pay more attention to a text than to the neighbors they're supposed to love, often leading them to plug up their ears with Bible verses so they can't hear the anguished cries of their neighbors in need or something to that effect. And it was specifically a reference to the way in which conservative Christians seem to ignore the way in which their views on homosexuality are damaging to their gay and lesbian neighbors. But I haven't received much that's been a direct response to my book. And I wonder the reason for that is that more conservative Christians aren't buying my book. I get quite a bit of friendly emails and letters from progressive Christians who have appreciated my book. But by and large, it seems that conservative Christians have been ignoring my book, and I'm not sure why. Well, I can't say it's surprising. But I do want to ask you, why do you think that the conservative Christians have latched on to homosexuality. I mean, it's probably mentioned five times in 2,000 pages. <laughs> why, why is that something that they think is important to God? 
If you want to get really technical, homosexuality as such is, as an orientation, isn't mentioned at all anywhere in the Bible. Behavior, clear, explicit reference to homosexual behavior is clearly or unambiguously referenced three times in the entire Bible, twice in Leviticus and once in Romans. And then there are a couple of other passages in Paul's letters that are sometimes appealed to, which are... The translation from the Greek is contested, so it's hard to you know, make much uh, out of them. Yeah, why this obsession with homosexuality among conservative Christians? I, it's a question I've thought about it a fair bit, and I think part of it is that most conservative Christians, not all, but most, are not gay. Right? And it's probably you know, the same as the general population, about yeah. 10% at, at most. So 90% are not gay. And therefore, taking a strong stand against homosexuality is easy, right? Insofar as you can feel self-righteous, that's not something uh, that I do, and that's something other people do, without being challenged by the prohibition at all, right? I mean, if you're straight like, like I am, a prohibition on homosexual sex is not a challenging prohibition that's forcing you to sacrifice anything. You know, there are other prohibitions in the Bible that are far more significant than that that actually would challenge uh, conservative Christians to transform their lives in profound ways. Not too long ago on my blog, I did a kind of onion-esque parody article about this uh, small sect-like church that has shown up to picket outside uh, another church because the pastor has bought a new car. And they're picketing with signs that say things like, new car owners go to hell, and God hates new car owners, and things like that. Of course, it's a parody on Fred Phelps and Westboro Baptist Church. The point is that spending your resources on a new car when there are people all over the world starving to death, you know, a new car is a luxury. And there's an enormous volume of material in the Bible that is talking about equity for the poor, concern for the poor, that is, uh, has a very negative message towards those who indulge in luxuries while others go hungry. Yeah. And so it occurred to me that really conservative Christians, if they're wanting to sort of follow what is truly a challenging moral prescription that is heavily emphasized in Scripture, That would really challenge most Americans in a way that the prohibition on homosexuality just simply does not. So I think that the prohibition on homosexuality functions as a sort of in-group, out-group marker, a rallying precept. You know, I'm I'm now being kind of an armchair sociologist, uh, psychologist here, and uh, that's not where my training and expertise is, but that's where my my own thinking on the subject takes me. Well, yeah, the Bible has much more to say against capitalism and wealth than it does against homosexual behavior, but that's not what Christians are going to latch on to generally because that would require that they change something. Right. Yeah, I mean, a, a prohibition on, on uh, accumulation of wealth, of enjoying luxuries while others are going hungry is a prohibition that American uh, Christians, if they really adopted and took it seriously, would have to first uh, apply to themselves uh, and think about its implications for their own lives. And it can't thereby function as a way for them to feel good about themselves for 
not being one of them. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your book then. Your book is quite consciously a mirror of a book published in 1799 by Friedrich Schleiermacher called On Religion, Speeches to Its Cultured Despisers. And both you and Schleiermacher responded to the attack on religion in your time, arguing that most of religion's critics and most religious people have somehow missed the point about religion. How so? Let me step back and say that as I'm as I've been engaged in dialogue and conversations about religion since the publication of my book, I've had some insights or revelations. Um, when I wrote my book, I said that I thought religion was a family resemblance term, which is Wittgenstein has this idea that some terms are family resemblance terms, by which he means that the meaning of the term can't be captured by uh, a definition in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions. Rather, the term's extension encompasses a range of entities that are similar only in a manner and analogous to family resemblances. So, my son resembles me, I resemble my mother, my mother resembles her brother, uh, her brother resembles his son, but uh, his son, my cousin, does not resemble my son at all, practically. Right? Right. So he uses the example of a game. Game is a family resemblance term. There's not much that peekaboo has in common with professional football, but they're both games because there's this chain of family resemblances that connects them all together, all these things that we call games. Mm -hmm. And likewise, I said for religion. And so if one says, as in my looser moments I'm inclined to do, the new atheists are missing the point of religion, there's actually something problematic with saying that. Because religion doesn't name just one thing that can be sort of clearly defined. Mm -hmm. Now, since writing the book, I've become more and more convinced that religion is better understood not as a family resemblance term, but as an essentially contested concept. That's a, an idea that was introduced by W.D. Galley back in the 1950s in a famous article. But I originally resisted thinking of it as an essentially contested concept because there were ways in which religion didn't fit the model, but now I've decided that it's an essentially contested concept with a twist. Let me just briefly sketch out what I think an essentially contested concept is. Yeah. Then I'll talk about what I think the twist is, and then we'll be positioned to sort of answer your question. So I'm taking like eight steps back to make one small step forward. You're such a philosopher. Right. <laughs> well, Galley had this idea that there are some terms that we use in a community of discourse which are such that... What unites their use is two things. First, an appraisive meaning. That is, there's a certain judgment that goes with applying the term to something. So, for example, a term like work of art. If you call something a work of art, you're making a judgment about it. Mm -hmm. And that's an essential feature of the meaning of the term, that there's a certain kind of judgment that goes with its application. Something is called a work of art if 
we extend the scope of the term to some entity, we are making a judgment about that entity. Okay? So that's the first feature of essentially contested concepts. The other feature of essentially contested concepts that unites the use is a set of a shared paradigms, like exemplars, which everyone agrees fall within the scope of the term's proper use. So again, with work of art, Michelangelo's David uh, is an exemplar of a work of art. The ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is an exemplar of a work of art. Uh, Monet's painting, the Mona Lisa, and uh, you know the list goes on. We have an enormous body of things: Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and Dante's Inferno. I mean, and different you know kinds of art artworks. But we have a range of exemplars. Everyone agrees these are works of art, right? But the fact about these exemplars is that they are very complex. They have a wide range of properties and characteristics. And what characterizes an essentially contested concept is that while everyone agrees on the paradigms of, say, works of art, and we all agree that to be a work of art is to embody a certain achievement or to embody some, some very negative thing in the case of, I, I think rape is an essentially contested concept. There wrote an article about that a few years ago. Hmm. But while everyone agrees that to be a work of art is to embody a certain achievement and to deserve a certain, positive, a certain kind of positive appraisal, and while everyone agrees that these paradigms are works of art, the paradigms are complex and there's enormous disagreement about which features of the paradigms justify the appraisal. And Galley's idea was that if we seek to establish a traditional definition for one of these concepts, what we would be doing is, in effect, shutting down by definitional fiat a normative debate that should not be shut down in that way. We're using a certain term, work of art, to make a certain kind of judgment and people use the term differently, right? Some people will apply work of art to, I don't know, I read once about some guy who went to a beach with a bunch of old toilets and buried them uh, at various levels in the sand along the beach and then took pictures of what he had done. And these pictures were touted as, a work of art. And of course, many people said, that's not art. Well, that's stupidity, right? And, and others said, no, no, that's a legitimate work of art, right? Mm -hmm. And the debate there is a debate about, in effect, which features of the paradigms of art justify the normative appraisal that goes with being named a work of art. The fact is that the normative appraisal is so much a part of the use of the term, that we can't divorce that normative appraisal. And so we have to be open to competing definitions and to hear reasons and arguments for these competing definitions in order to not shut down prematurely a legitimate normative dispute. Is that making sense? Well, yeah, if I can try to rephrase it, you're saying that a term like work of art is not just a descriptive term, but has some appraisal value where it's saying, this has a certain type of, in this case, good, 
value. And so then when somebody tries to apply that and you disagree that it has that same appraisal value, then there's this contention between the two of you over whether you can apply that term because you disagree on the appraisal value of the extension. Right. The other component is that there's a set of exemplars that we agree have this appraisal value. Right. Right. So we agree that the Mona Lisa and the Sistine Chapel and Hamlet are all works of art, but we might disagree right. on whether these toilets in the sand are, is a work of art. Right. And the disagreement is going to turn, to some extent at least, on which features of the complex paradigms we think are the features which justify the positive appraisal. A work of art is an essentially contested concept with a positive appraisal meaning. Something like rape is an essentially contested concept with a negative appraisive meaning. There's a set of sort of agreed paradigms of rape, if you will. There's a strong negative judgment that goes with the use of the term rape. There's a certain kind of condemnation. But there's disagreement about certain cases that some people want to call rape and others don't that turns on which features of the paradigms we think justify this kind of negative appraisal. You'll typically find everyone in a dispute, for example, agreeing that when a teenage boy takes his girlfriend of two months in the car up to lover's lookout and they're making out in the car and then he starts pressuring her to have sex and although she had gone there, they'd both gone there with the understanding that this would be the day, she's now nervous and backing down and he huffs in frustration, well, you know, if you're not going to put out today, then just leave, get out of the car knowing that she would have a 20-minute walk down the mountain to get home. <laughs> and she finally just caves and says, all right, all right, let's get over with. Uh, well, everyone will agree that what this guy did wasn't very nice, that it has a certain negative judgment. Some people will call it rape and others won't. And I think the reason turns to a great extent on whether they think the distinctive kind of negative judgment that the term rape carries with it is warranted in this case. Right. And that uh, depends on whether this case has elements in common with paradigms of rape, but it has differences from the paradigms as well. And so whether you think that the common elements are what justify the negative appraisal or whether you think that, that this distinctive negative appraisal or rape attaches to some other feature of the paradigms is going to be what ultimately sort of determines whether you're going to call it rape or not. Well, here's what I've become more and more convinced about with respect to religion, is that everyone uses religion as an essentially contested concept, but we have two competing communities of discourse. One community of discourse attaches a positive appraisive meaning to religion. The other community of discourse attaches a negative appraisive meaning to religion. Well, this was really highlighted for me just a couple of weeks ago. I wrote an article for Religion Dispatches about... Christopher Hitchens' interview with a Unitarian minister. And there were a couple of things that were really noticeable about this interview. First, they agreed about almost everything. Yeah. Right? They just agreed with each other uh, on their beliefs about things, even about, as I pointed out, this feeling of the numinous gesturing towards something more to reality than uh, is captured by materialism. I uh, even agreed about that. But 
uh, Hitchin was hostile to religion and defined himself as an anti-theist, and this Unitarian minister was described herself as religious. Right? And I'm like thinking, what's going on here? Well, I think part <laughs> of what's going on is that she belongs to a community of discourse in which the essentially contested concept religion carries with it a positive appraisive meaning. He belongs to a community of discourse in which the term religion carries a negative appraisive meaning, but they have the same basic value system. And so when she starts sifting through the paradigms of religion for the features that justify the positive normative appraisal that goes with the term religion, she is going to pick out of the paradigms those features which Christopher Hitchens is going to view as merely incidental to religion because he attaches to the term religion a negative appraisive meaning and is going to therefore, in looking for what justifies the negative appraisal, pick out of the paradigms of religion the very things that this Unitarian minister leaves behind on the table. Uh -huh. right? So she's going to you know, sort of sift through historic religions and hold up certain jewels and say, ah, this is what justifies the positive appraisal. That other stuff is just junk, right? And she's going to hold it up, and Hitches is going to look at it and say, yeah, I agree that that's a jewel, that's a treasure to be preserved, but it ain't religion, right? Because he attaches to religion a negative appraisive meaning, and if you've left all the junk and gunk behind, you've left religion behind, right? So... I am becoming more and more convinced that something like this is going on in the current public discourse about religion. And that all takes us back to your question. Oh, was there a question that started all this? Yeah, there was a question that started all this. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> right, you, you pointed out that I and Schleiermacher at our very, in our different times and places were both arguing that critics of religion had missed the point about religion. Yeah. And taking Hitches as an example, what I would say now is not that he's missed the point about religion, because religion in his sense has a negative appraisive meaning, and religion in my sense has a positive appraisive meaning, and but we're playing two different language games with the term. So I need to be more careful in precisely how I articulate the point I want to make, which is that in this complex phenomenon that we call religion, there is something of real value, and for many religious people, this something of real value is the point of religion, right? And the fact that the new atheists don't identify this something of real value with religion means that in a very real sense, we're talking past one another. Yeah. For my purposes now, what I'd like to say is that there is an understanding of religion that is the understanding of religion for many progressive theists. All 300 of you? There, there's obviously more than that. Um, uh, <laughs> you, just, you just don't shout as loudly as the conservatives. That's the problem. Yeah, well, there is a very, very broad progressive theist community. I, I mean, I don't know what percentage it is, but there, you know, there's millions. But progressive theists tend to embody in a range of character traits that lead them to, I think, be resistant to voicing the kinds of sound bites and pugilistic pronouncements that get media attention. I've led 
book discussion groups of my book at a few different churches, and admittedly, they're mainline churches. But within those mainline churches uh, where I've done the book discussion group, there's an enormous degree of wow, I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, that makes sense. That sort of fits with what I've been trying to, to articulate. Mm-hmm. That's what I've been trying to express, right? They've been immersed in a somewhat more conservative religious framework than the one that I articulate in my book, but they've been sort of groping toward, been dispositionally attuned to something that I haven't been able to express. Well, that's very encouraging to hear. Yeah, well, that's my experience. Of course, there's still an enormous amount of very conservative, ideological fundamentalistic religion out there. And because of the character of that species of religion, they tend to be very active and vocal. But in any event, getting back to your original question again, Schleiermacher was writing at a time when I don't think the kinds of concepts or ideas that led to my recent insight would have been even available. But his idea was that when he looked at religion and religious life, there was something fundamental that the critics of religion at his time weren't attending to. And the way he put it in his speeches on religion was that religion is not a knowing or a doing, but a feeling. By which he did not mean that religion was an emotional state. He meant feeling more in the sense of a kind of immediate intuition there's a sort of way that conscious states feel, like when I, sitting where I am, staring at my desk, see my blue water bottle on the table, the sensory experience of the blue water bottle on the table has a, if you will, immediate feeling of veridicality to it. You know, it feels different from when I close my eyes and imagine a blue water bottle on the table. And the other thing to keep in mind when he says religion is not a knowing or a doing but a feeling is he's not claiming that religious life doesn't involve beliefs and teachings, nor that it doesn't involve ritual practices and characteristic activities and ways of behavior. On the contrary, he thinks that one of the most important fruits of dwelling in religious feeling are the ethical fruits. And so there's a sort of doing that flows from religion that he uh, thinks is very important. And also he stresses that theology is a very important enterprise within religious communities, and theology is the attempt to make sense of the religious feeling and explicate it in some kind of propositional way. So what he's saying is that at the root, essentially, fundamentally, religion is about a certain feeling in the indicated sense. And the critics of religion in his day were fixated on doctrine and certain specific moral teachings and saying, you know, these doctrines are are unjustified or these moral teachings don't fit with what our Enlightenment ethics says is the appropriate way to live. And Schleiermacher was inclined or tended to agree with those concerns, but then say, but when you conclude, therefore, religion is misguided, Schleiermacher's response was, no, but there's this fundamental thing that you haven't even looked at yet, right? And this is the really important thing, and it's the wellspring of both doctrine and religious ethical norms, and that's 
the thing that we need to sort of really focus on. And if we do, we'll find that it is not incompatible with Enlightenment ideas, but rather that Enlightenment ideas, insofar as they uh, express a, perhaps a broader understanding of the natural world, uh, provide resources for interpreting the religious feeling that opens the door for a whole new era of theological reflection and a more profound uh, ethical insight springing from the religious feeling than would have been available prior to the Enlightenment. Uh, of course, that required a view of religion that was opposed to kind of rigid dogmatism about doctrine and openness to modifying and refining one's theological interpretation of the religious feeling. One of the things that you know, really strikes me as I read, for example, Dawkins in The God Delusion, is that he treats theism as an explanatory hypothesis, a claim that is intended to explain why things look like this rather than like that, why we make this observation rather than some different observation. It is supposed to explain things. And uh, this is perfectly understandable uh, that he would treat theism in these terms given his extended engagement with uh, the intelligent design movement. And this is exactly what ID theorists do. They treat uh, theism as an explanatory hypothesis. Uh -huh. Now, I don't have an especially high opinion of theism when it's invoked as an explanatory hypothesis, but I think theism can be invoked to serve a very different function, what I call an interpretive worldview. I think this distinction uh, is uh, gestured towards by uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is from his letters and papers from uh, prison. Bonhoeffer says, uh, How wrong it is to use God as a stopgap for the incompleteness of our knowledge. If, in fact, the frontiers of knowledge are being pushed further and further back, and that is bound to be the case, then God is being pushed back with them and is therefore continually in retreat. We are to find God in what we know, not in what we don't know. God wants us to realize his presence, not in unsolved problems, but in those that are solved. Now, you can read Bonhoeffer here as simply offering like a strategic point, but I don't think that's right. I mean, that if we stake the theistic claim on gaps in our knowledge base, then as human knowledge expands, he finds itself standing on an ever-shrinking island with the tide washing in. It's going to be like a polar bear on the iceberg. Right, yes. <laughs> but his point is that the person who invokes this god of the gap is really trying to do science with God rather than trying to do religion with God. I mean, that would be a sloganish way to put it. Uh, and the key for him is we are to find God in what we know, not in what we don't know. The way I understand that is that Bonhoeffer takes the function of theism not to be uh, filling in explanatory gaps in our understanding of how the natural world works, but rather to offer a kind of holistic interpretation of the significance of the natural world and our broader experience beyond the natural world. And ideally, you want to have as fully worked out a description of every element of the whole 
in place before, and this is of course impossible, before you can fully or adequately assess one way of seeing versus another. Uh, along with Wittgenstein, uh, Hick makes use of the infamous duck-rabbit image uh-huh. as, a, as a sort of metaphor for, for what seeing as is about. The duck-rabbit image is this ambiguous image that once you have a full grasp of the image, you understand every detail, you see and identify every part of it, there's still this, in a sense, choice you can make. You can see it as a duck. You can see it as a rabbit. Right? And if you look at it for a while, you can sort of toggle between these two. And you can, the elements mean something different when you see it as a duck and when you see it as a rabbit. When you see it as a duck, these two things sticking out on one side are the bill. Right? They have that meaning. When you see it as a rabbit, they're the ears. Right? They have a different meaning. Right? Now, the way I understand the form of theism that I think can be intellectually defensible, it's not an explanatory hypothesis, but a feature of an interpretive worldview that makes possible a certain way of seeing the whole of human experience. But let me stress a few things. First of all, interpretive worldviews can't be applied willy-nilly. Right? You can't just choose any old interpretive worldview for the experience that we have. Given the duck-rabbit image, you can see it as a duck. You can see it as a rabbit. You cannot legitimately see it as an enraged, axe-wielding Viking about to smash a hamster into. Right? Yeah, I don't see it there. Right. Yeah, I can look at the image all day, and I, don't, I can't see it as... I can try, but it just doesn't map onto the material that's available for interpretation. And likewise, there are certain worldviews that require you to pretend that the world we experience is different than the way we experience it. The world of experience allows for different uh, holistic interpretations. It doesn't allow for any holistic interpretation. And there are certain interpretations that are offered for the field of experience that just don't map onto it. And that's especially true given what science has explicated. And I think that, for example, young Earth creationists are engaged in an exercise analogous to trying to see the duck-rabbit image as the axe-wielding Viking. It doesn't work. But just because certain theistic worldviews don't work doesn't mean that others can't map onto the field of experience. A theistic worldview will attach a different meaning to the religious feeling that Schleiermacher identifies than will a naturalistic worldview, in much the way that seeing the duck rabbit as a rabbit will attach a different meaning to the bump than will seeing it as a duck. Um, The fine-tuning of the universe, which is often invoked uh, as a kind of design argument. Now, In many versions of the design argument, what you have is theism introduced as an explanatory hypothesis to explain the phenomenon of fine-tuning. When that's going on, the argument, in effect, is that fine-tuning provides evidence for the existence of God. Right. Fine-tuning provides evidence for the existence of God because theism provides the best explanation for Mm fine-tuning. Right. And there's all these arguments invoking 
Bayesian theory debates back and forth about whether you know fine-tuning on the assumption of theism and fine-tuning blah blah. blah. I, I get tired of reading it. If you want to put yourself to sleep, read Richard <laughs> Swidmurn or Robin Collins. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, sometimes I, I I can get into it and I and I read it carefully and then focused and, and get excited about it. But I have to load up on energy drinks whenever I try to read Robin Collins. Right. Yeah. But <laughs> my point is that there's a big difference between what's going on with a fine tuning argument and seeing fine tuning in terms of a broadly theistic worldview. Well, it's one of those elements that you're interpreting, and right. if you know, you can see the patch as a nose on a rabbit or as just a patch on a duck, and so you're seeing right. fine-tuning one way depending on which interpretive worldview you're using. Right. So, I mean, there's a big difference between seeing the fine-tuning of the universe as the handiwork of an intelligent creator and offering the intelligent creator hypothesis to explain fine-tuning. Mm. Right. Here's the thing. If you invoke the intelligent creator hypothesis to explain fine-tuning, then you're in the domain of science and your hypothesis is going to be meaningful only to the extent that enables you to make falsifiable predictions and the like. And theists pretty much never propose the hypothesis in those terms. They never define it right. specifically enough that you could possibly disprove it. Right. But if you are offering theism as part of an interpretive worldview that offers a way of seeing fine-tuning, the meaning of an interpretive worldview is not given by what predictions it entails, but more pragmatically by what implications it has for how you relate to that which is being interpreted. Mm. Uh, so, for example, if you see fine-tuning as the handiwork of God, then an attitude of gratitude towards that handiwork makes sense. Whereas if you see fine-tuning as the outcome of uh, a multiverse that has generated countless universes with countless many different fundamental constants, and we just happen to exist in that universe which was fine-tuned to make our existence possible, then an attitude of gratitude maybe doesn't make sense. Right? But an attitude of profound humility might make sense. Yes, an attitude of profound humility might make sense. Um, and I think the, the sort of multiverse hypothesis, it's been pointed out by a number of people in the fine-tuning argument that this is just as unfalsifiable a hypothesis as, this, as a theistic one. And I think that's right, but I think that shows that what these claims are is their interpretive worldviews, not uh, explanatory hypotheses. And their significance lies not in the difference they make for how the world looks that then makes them falsifiable. Their meaning lies in the implications that they have for how we should live and respond to the world around us. If you see people in this one way, that there's something good in all of them, no matter how deeply buried, you're more likely to probably be motivated to go into a workshop and spend time with prisoners. If you think that some people are just rotten to the core, you're more likely to give up on people sooner. Yeah. What these different things mean plays out pragmatically rather than in terms of predictive power and, and falsifiability. 
you know, I've often pointed out that metaphysical naturalism is totally unfalsifiable. It's consistent with any empirical observation we could possibly make. Now, that often makes some naturalists uncomfortable, but I don't think it should because metaphysical naturalism is not an explanatory hypothesis. It is an interpretive worldview, a way of seeing the whole. And insofar as it is a way of seeing the whole, its meaningfulness does not hinge upon its falsifiability, but its meaning is given by the implications it has for how we relate to the world, how we engage with the world. So, Eric, you've been talking about theism as an interpretive worldview, and you think that there are some problems offering it as an explanatory hypothesis. But a lot of philosophers would say that pretty much the only way to have reasons to believe that something is true is to offer it as the best explanation for something. Or maybe we could try to show that it's logically impossible for something not to exist, but it's not very clear that that's happened ever. So, great if theism is an interpretive worldview that has ramifications for how you relate to the features of our universe, but do we have some kind of reason to think that it happens to be the true theory? Yeah. This broadest of all uh, levels uh, of engagement with the world, while we can rule out some holistic interpretations as irrational, I'm very skeptical of the claim that we can sort of identify one holistic interpretation as most plausible in the light of reasons and evidence and argument. Well, and that's why you said that it might not be possible to offer naturalism as an explanatory hypothesis either. Right. right. I mean, part of the point that I was trying to make in my book is that reasonable people can disagree about some things, and especially at the most abstract level. It's quite possible, I think, that if we refine and nuance our understanding of the natural world, our understanding of ourselves as encountered introspectively, our understanding of our aesthetic and ethical experience, etc., more and more interpretive worldviews will fall away. Well, and it's almost like we have a really fuzzy picture of the duck-rabbit, and then we're focusing our lens in, and as more of the details become clear, fewer and fewer interpretive stances on that duck-rabbit are going to make any sense. Right. And I think part of what complicates matters in the case of a holistic interpretation of experience is that what we experience, how clear or how cloudy the picture is, how fuzzy it is, how sharp it is here, is a function of our interpretive worldview. So, I mean, if you are habituated to seeing the world uh, according to a particular interpretive worldview, that's going to affect what's in sharp focus and what's blurry and what you attend to and what you don't attend to in this vast field of human experience. And so I think it's particularly difficult in the case of a holistic interpretation of all of human experience to make progress in refining or sharpening the image because such progress is always limited by the way we're seeing it. I'd like to return to your book. 
you present mm-hmm. it as a response to the new atheists, but then your response, I think the new atheists are going to say, well, that's not the type of religion I was talking about at all. So, right. you know, how does this relate to the type of religion that Dawkins and Dennett and Harris are criticizing? My concern with particularly Dawkins and Harris is that their arguments focus on a particular species of a particular brand of religion, but they apply their conclusions in an undifferentiated way to religion or theistic religion. Sure. And what I want to say is, while there is much religion that is neither intellectually respectable nor morally benign, uh, something that is recognizably religion in some important sense that many people will look at and say, yes, that's religion, can fall within the parameters of that which is intellectually respectable and morally benign. And my point is that there can be religion that is intellectually respectable and morally benign, so the fact that there is much out there that isn't is not a justification for throwing it all away. I'm in lockstep with Dawkins when he discusses the horror of someone like Fred Phelps of Westboro Baptist Church, who you know, goes around uh, with his congregation of mostly family members, picketing a- any churches that are soft on homosexuality and going to the funeral of Matthew Shepard with big signs saying, Matthew Shepard is now burning in hell. I agree that that's horrifying. There's nothing reasonable about it. There's nothing moral about it. But Dawkins seems to blame this sort of phenomenon, the Fred Phelps community, on something that is essential to uh, religion as such. That's where I most fundamentally disagree. I think they're uh, you know, throwing out the baby with the bathwater I personally think that the best hope for marginalizing and ultimately minimizing the impact of the kinds of extremist religious phenomena, such as what we find embodied in in Phelps, is in nurturing and encouraging progressive religion. We're not going to get rid of dangerous religious fundamentalism in the world by shouting that all religion is evil and should be done away with that all religious people are either irrational or immoral. The way we're going to get rid of fundamentalism is by nurturing an alternative kind of religiosity characterized by virtues that are at odds with the characteristic features of dangerous fundamentalism. Well, switching gears, I have one last question. Most theists would think that if God exists, the default moral theory is divine command ethics, such that Whatever God says is good, or whatever God wants, that's what is morally good. Now, you reject divine command ethics. Why do you reject divine command ethics, and what is your theory of morality? Yeah. Well, the first question is a lot easier to answer than the second. <laughs> uh, I'm you know, trying to come up with the right moral theory is, is really, really, really hard. But let me say why I reject the divine command theory of ethics. The divine command theory of ethics, I 
take to be a theory that has the same basic form as naive versions of ethical subjectivism and cultural relativism. Now, here's what I mean. All of these theories take morality to be a matter of someone's say-so. In, you know, sort of extreme ethical subjectivism, it's the say-so of the individual. Whatever I decide is right for me is right for me. It's from the form of cultural relativism, whatever the culture decides is right is right, regardless of what substantively the culture decides is right. And in divine command theory, you have the same thing, except it's God who's deciding what's right and what's wrong. So God's decisions are the standard of moral truth. Well, there's a famous passage from Leibniz's discourses on metaphysics that I love to quote to my students. Leibniz liked to attack the divine command theory whenever he could. (laughs) This is from the discourses of metaphysics. He says, In saying, therefore, that things are not good according to any standard of goodness, but simply by the will of God, it seems to me that one destroys without realizing it all the love of God and all his glory, For why praise him for what he has done if he would be equally praiseworthy in doing the contrary? Where will be his justice and his wisdom if he has only a certain despotic power, if arbitrary will takes the place of reasonableness, and if, in accord with the definition of tyrants, justice consists in that which is pleasing to the most powerful? Now, what I take Leibniz to be saying here is that if morality is simply a product of divine will, then until God has made a decision on the matter, torturing babies for fun is morally neutral, right? There's nothing about torturing babies for fun that is guiding God's decision to prohibit it, because if there were something about torturing babies for fun, a reason why God should prohibit it rather than not, then that reason would be a source of foundation for morality independent of divine will, a standard of goodness that God's will is being responsive to. And so you have to deny that there's any such standard of goodness in order to preserve a divine command theory and say that God's will is the standard of goodness. And so we're left with an arbitrary God. And Leibniz says, in effect, an arbitrary God is not worthy of our worship and praise. There's a line of objection to the extreme problem, as I've articulated it, I think it was Barrick Brody who laid out. Let me sketch out Brody's response. Brody is aware of this objection to divine command theory, and Brody responds with the analogy of a landlord. And let's say you have a landlord who decides to prohibit pets. Well, Brody says, the landlord may have good reasons for prohibiting pets. However, those reasons for prohibiting pets are not reasons for me not to have a pet that are sort of compelling in the sense that in the absence of the landlord's prohibiting pets, it would be perfectly all right for me to have a pet in my apartment. Mm -hmm. But because the landlord has prohibited it, it would be wrong for me to have a pet. So Brody says what we have here is an example of a landlord who's acting on the basis of reasons to uh, issue a prohibition but the reasons themselves are not normative for me, the tenant, but the prohibition is. Uh-huh. 
Well, if you if you dig more deeply into this example, you you ask, well, why is the prohibition normative for me? And uh, the answer is that the landlord has a right to decide what happens in and to his property, right? And also on the basis of a voluntary contract that the tenant has signed with mm-hmm. the landlord. That's correct, yes. And the, the tenant has entered into a contractual relationship with the landlord. But in any event, the landlord's authority to make prohibitions of this sort is rooted in certain broader moral truths that invest the landlord with authority. Now, where do these moral truths come from? Well, certainly not from the landlord's decree. Uh, You see the problem. If we try to sort of defend divine command theory by appeal to this analogy, Uh we need to ask ourselves, well, on what basis does God have the authority to issue these decrees and to have them listened to? Why do these decrees have moral weight? Is it because of certain moral truths about God? Well, if so, where do these moral truths come from? They can't come from divine decree, or we have you know, a circularity that you know, can't serve as a justification for the moral authority of divine decrees. And so the only reason we can give for why we should obey God's commands, if we accept the divine command theory, is, he'll smite us if we don't. Any other account we give for why we should obey God's commands is ultimately going to presuppose a foundation for moral truth that is, in some sense, independent of divine decree. So God becomes the ultimate tyrant in the sky. And uh, one of the things I talk about in my book is I make this distinction between religion and superstition. Elsewhere, I've referred to it as the religion of hope and the religion of fear. Right. And they operate in very different ways. And what divine command theory ultimately lends itself to is the religion of fear, where uh, religion is about appeasing a terrifying power and scurrying to obey out of fear, as opposed to you know, a religion of hope, which is expressed by someone like Martin Luther King when he says the universe bends towards justice, or when he says that beneath the harsh appearances of the world, I believe there is a benign power that offers cosmic companionship in our struggle for the good. That, in a nutshell, is why I reject the divine command theory of ethics. If you accept the divine command theory, the divine command theory doesn't tell us what is right and wrong. It simply tells us that morality is a product of divine decree, which means that in order to know how we ought to live on the divine command theory, we need access to God's decrees. We need to know what God's decrees are. But then for the divine command theory to be an action-guiding moral theory, we need access to divine decrees. But then the question is, how do we discern what God decrees. The, the fact is that we operate and live in a world in which there are many rival claimants to divine revelation. How do we decide among them? Well, given that the divine command theory implies that God's will is essentially arbitrary, that there are no reasons that guide God in issuing the decrees that God uh, issues, God's decrees could be anything at all, right? And so we can't look at the substance of the 
respective teachings of rival prophets and uh, assess their substance to ascertain whether that's the kind of thing that a good God would decree. That whole strategy is disallowed by the structure of divine command theory. Divine command theory makes divine decrees essentially arbitrary, so there's nothing you can you have to go on substantively. And the standard Christian answer to, to how you distinguish true from false prophets by their fruits, well, that's disallowed, right? because what that means is you look at and evaluate the consequences of living by the teachings of the respective prophets. Uh-huh. You look at this prophet's followers and how they live and, and, what, and how their lives go, you evaluate those lives and you say, well, those are good lives. Well... To know whether those lives are good lives or bad lives, according to divine command theory, you first have to know God's decrees. So you've got a catch-22, a vicious circle. You can't discern what God's decrees are that way. I mean, you see the problem. You might try to say, well, maybe we can discern God's decrees by some formal features of a supposed prophet that we might say that a real prophet would look a certain way. There'd be a constancy and consistency in the message. There'd be a coherence to it. The prophet would be one whose voice, in some sense, would be heard all over the world. It wouldn't be isolated to a particular street corner. But why think that those formal features would be part of an authentic uh, source of revelation or a real true prophet. Yep. Again, you're making a certain value judgments, and you know if God arbitrarily decreed that it was good for revelation to come to humanity only in the voice of one crazy drunk in a burlap sack standing on a soapbox on a street corner in Chicago, and that that would be the only source of revelation. He he decided arbitrarily, because of a divine command theory, uh, all these decisions are arbitrary, that that would be the best way for revelation to be delivered to humanity, then it would. And there's no reason why God, on the divine command theory, wouldn't decide that. So the point is that if you accept a divine command theory, in order to know what's right and wrong, you must know what God's decrees are. But if you accept the divine command theory, there's absolutely no way to discern from among the various claimants to speaking for God who is authentic and who isn't. And so there's no way to know what God's decrees are. So the divine command theory simply cannot be an action-guiding theory. Well, and another thing you alluded to earlier is that even if the theist bites the bullet and says, yes, divine command morality is the rule of a tyrant, and the reason that we obey God is because he'll smite us if we don't, then fine, that's at least consistent, but... Mm it does completely evacuate the adjectives that we apply to God, such as worthy of praise or good or something mm-hmm. like that. It just makes them... Right. It makes it like calling Kim Jong-il worthy of worship because he has the power and he'll smite us if we don't obey him and we're in right. North Korea, you know. Right. That's, for me, the, the crucial point, and that's the essence of Leibniz's attack on the divine command theory that we talked about earlier. So anyway, it's well, almost, I wonder if you might I wonder if you might just gesture real briefly at some thoughts you have about a positive account of morality. I started out as a moral philosopher long before I was anywhere near being interested in philosophy of religion. Okay. I will confess to not having a theory of morality that I am wholly wedded to or convinced by. Yeah, me too, by the way. 
Yeah. But there are certain elements of my moral experience that I cannot treat as anything but veridical without, in a sense, thinking less of myself. And one of the things that is therefore important for me as I'm assessing moral theories is do these moral theories give an account of these elements of my moral experience or do they, mm-hmm. uh, as many theories do, explain it away? Now, one of the things that is a, a sort of central element of my moral experience is that there is something about, say, my daughter that demands a valuing response from me such that I would be failing to respond to her appropriately if I did not value her. And and not just valuing her as a means, but valuing her as an end. That is, valuing her for what she is in herself as opposed to how I can put her to use in various ways. Now, Kant offers one way of trying to make sense of this, and neo-Kantians of various sorts have attempted to pursue this roughly Kantian way of making sense of this intuition. And for a long time, I was very drawn to, but also skeptical of this neo-Kantian approach, which in a nutshell says that, well, my daughter has this power of, of rationality. And as a rational agent myself who is making decisions on the basis of reason, I cannot act towards her in a way that fails to value her rationality without implicitly asserting a kind of contradiction. Because when I act as a rational agent, I am valuing my own rationality, but I can't value my own rationality without valuing rationality as such. And if I'm acting towards her in a way that fails to value her rationality, then I'm simultaneously, through my actions, saying rationality is worthy of being valued and rationality is not worthy of being valued. And so there's an implicit contradiction. That's uh, an oversimplified formulation of the Gewerthian neo-Kantian move. But there's other ways to formulate it. But for a long time, I was really, I really took that seriously, but it didn't quite work for me. I published at least one critique of Gewerth a few years back, and there were some other critiques that I never really fully developed. But in addition to some of the problems in the chain of reasoning there's, for me, a deeper problem with this neo-Kantian account of this intuition that I'm not capable of giving up on, that there's something about my daughter that demands a valuing response in me. Uh, the other thing is that I don't just have this intuition with respect to my daughter and other human beings. I have it with respect to my dog, okay? And my dog has never been, never will be a rational agent. So it's not my dog's rationality that is demanding a valuing response in me on pain of contradiction. Mm-hmm. But I am, in a sense, I am a moral realist in the sense that I think that there's something real there that I am recognizing. But with GE Moore, I'm suspicious of reducing this property to any observable natural property. Well, I can tell that you're really struggling with these ideas, and it's very much the same way that I'm struggling with the type of moral theory that I find most plausible. But I really respect your intellectual humility, and I've really been enjoying listening to you. Eric, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've, I've enjoyed it a lot. 